Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. Once again, this is going to be a different kind of show, and it may seem like I say that a lot, and I suppose I do say that a lot, but... I guarantee it this time, money-back guarantee, this will be a different kind of show. It's kind of like a best-of episode, but not best of myself. How does that work? Well, there's a website that you have never heard of. It's called YKYZ, and from the summer of 2019 on into early 2020, it pioneered a completely new format of content micro-podcasts or microcasts. These were podcasts made up of very short episodes, usually about a minute long. And during its brief moment in the sun, this website, this service, YKYZ, which I should note, this is a project that I worked on, full disclosure there, it generated hundreds of interesting microcasts, which put out thousands and thousands of short episodes. I'm not going to go through the history of the website of YKYZ, which does still exist at YKYZ.com, though mostly now as an archive of microcasts and other short pieces of audio content. I will note that it was innovative for the time, and there's still no popular online forum for short-form audio-based discussion. Today, though, we are going to be digging into that archive and exploring some of its many hidden gems. This will be an eclectic show because these microcast episodes were an eclectic bunch. In that spirit, I'm going to start us right off here with an episode from the microcast 62nd Shalom, which explores a Scandinavian term that means the pursuit of everyday happiness. Grace and peace. Welcome to 60 Second Shalom on YKYZ. Today I'd like to discuss the Scandinavian concept of huga. Huga is the feeling that arises in those intimate, cozy, peace-filled, slightly indulgent moments. Mike Wyking, author of The Little Book of Huga, describes the essence of huga as the pursuit of everyday happiness, like a hug, just without the physical touch. Huga should involve all five of your senses. It's more along the lines of an ambiance, a feeling, or a lifestyle than it is an action or something that you do. Huga will always look different for each person, depending on their interests, personalities, and what brings them joy and contentment. That was the microcast episode about Huga, a feeling of contentment that I hope you get and continue to get as you listen to the clips here. We're going to move on to the next one, which is from one of the earliest pioneers of the microcast genre, a user named Jonathan, who had a microcast called I Am Millennial. In this very first episode, he took listeners on a mini journey that captured a slice of his life and times. Hi there, Jonathan checking in. 
I perfected my elevator speech. I've danced to 90 songs at wedding receptions. And I'm the master of small talk with my Uber drivers on Saturday evenings. I am millennial. In our social media world, we find ourselves going out less and staying in more. Talk about a paradox. It's harder to find a date IRL in real life for those who don't recall the good old AIM days. So dating apps reign supreme on the millennial team. As I browse through profiles of women from the Bay Area, one catchphrase recurs, introverted extrovert. If I had a dollar for every time I spotted that on a dating profile, well, I suppose my rent wouldn't be as bad. But I digress. We've typecasted ourselves into different personalities, for better or for worse. Are you the life of the party? Extrovert. Is being the life of the party your worst nightmare? Introvert. Your boy be in the louder camp. Introvert for life. Are you introvert? Extrovert? Both? What's your flavor? Hope to hear from you soon. That was Jonathan with a slice of life, of his life. There were lots of these episodes that seemed to capture the moment in time that was 2019. Here's another one by Connor Kowalczyk, who had a microcast called The Life Bites Podcast. And he asked the question, well, I'm just going to let him pose it, and maybe you can see why this was an interesting question to be asking right at the end of 2019. This is Life Bites. I'm Connor Kowalczyk. So I've had this idea for a story for a while. Maybe it's been done before, but the thought still intrigues me. Should we wake up the sleeper? The conceit for the story would be there's this group of people someplace, maybe in a bunker, somewhere that's isolated, and one of them would be sleeping. And somehow the group finds out that there's some sort of cataclysmic event coming. Perhaps there's a missile on its way or a nuclear meltdown, something like that. Whatever it is, they know they're not going to make it. And the conflict of the story would be, should we wake up the person who's sleeping so that they can know what's going to happen? Or should we just leave them in peace? The thoughts always intrigued me because it makes us ask the question, what would we really want in that situation? Would we want to know what was coming? Or would we rather sleep on through? In another interesting lens on what was to come, user I Love Everyone, who, as you'll hear, was just a regular everyone kind of person, mused about the lack of support for homeschooled students. Episode 35 of I Love Everyone's Microcast. Homeschool children matter. Did you know that in the New York City Department of Education, each child it receives, there's a $17,500 grant that's given for each child to attend school for the New York State to educate them. And I've often wondered, being a parent who homeschools, Why is it when you remove your child from public school, there isn't some type of stipend set up for the child to be educated at home? Even though it's the parent's choice, you're still under the umbrella of the the New York City Department of Education. They issue a free uh, bus pass, but even if it was a $100 stipend to help with school trips, to help with school supplies. It really would help. What do you think about that? 
Some of my favorite microcast episodes explored the corners of the world and experiences I knew nothing about. One of the best of these casters published under the name That Bearded Swede, and here he explains the tradition and laws related to public access on private property, including the right to pick berries and mushrooms. Hello and welcome to the Swedish Smorgasbord here on YKYZ.com. Today's episode is about the right of public access. The right of public access, which is called Allemansrätten in Swedish, stems from the 40s when efforts were made to make it easier for people in the cities to get access to nature. It gives you the right to, for example, temporarily be on and travel through privately owned property and to pick berries and mushrooms. You have to show consideration towards landowners, animals and nature in general. The right of public access was from the beginning a custom, but since 1994 a part of the constitutional law. Other Nordic countries such as Norway, Finland and Iceland also grant you the right of public access. That was all for this episode. I hope to see you around for the next one. Bye till then. That was Frederick, otherwise known as That Bearded Swede. Another one of my favorite microcasters was Jem, also known as Fashion Musings. She was great at packing lots of information in her short episodes. Here she explains that South Korea used to have literal fashion police who wandered the streets armed with, well, you'll just have to listen. Hey there, Jem here. Today I'll be talking about something from the past, so let's rewind time a bit. Back in the 1970s, South Korea had a so-called fashion police who patrolled the streets carrying rulers and measuring the length of women's skirts. If it turned out to be too short, the woman could be fined or arrested. Apparently, the skirt rule dates back to the military dictatorship back in the 1970s. During the same time frame, the fashion police could also stop men on the street if their hair was too long. And even the fashion police themselves could end up performing the haircut on the spot. If not that, they'd ask for a fine or even jail time for the offender. The good news, though, is that it's no longer enforced now. And when South Korea became a democracy in 1987, most authoritarian restrictions under Minor Offenses Act have been scrapped since then. That was Jem with her microcast episode about the history, the secret history of the South Korean fashion police, one of the many microcast episodes that aired at YKYZ.com, which is what we are devoting our show to today, a dive into the archives, a kind of best of the website YKYZ.com and the content that appeared there. Speaking of casts about history, no microcaster knew more about the history of music than Addie Katz. In one of her early episodes, she told the little-known story of one of the most famous folk and blues songs of all time. 
Hi cats, Addie Caldwell here with Music in Peace, and I'm also bringing you your song recommendation of the day straight from the 1960s. Now, this song seems like a pretty good song for a Monday, and it goes by the title of The House of the Rising Sun. This one is a traditional folk song, but I bet you'd probably be better familiar with the version recorded by The Animals in 1964. This song was a huge hit in not just the UK, but also France and America, and with no disrespect to Bob Dylan, this song has often been called the very first hit song for folk rock. Now, things kind of jump down a rabbit hole when you try to track down the origins of the song, and this is because folk songs aren't really easily traceable. It's generally conceded that The House of the Rising Sun was a song sung by miners as early as 1905, but it was around long before then too, and the earliest known recording of the song was done in 1933 by Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, though it was then titled Rising Sun Blues. In 1941, folk singer Woody Guthrie recorded a version of the song, and then in 1962 it was covered again by Bob Dylan for his debut album. But the Animals version recorded in 1964 remains the best-known version, and arguably the better of them all. So hopefully you're having a wonderful Monday thus far and the rest of your day isn't plagued by the rising sun blues. Bye cats. Maybe at this point you are beginning to capture the spirit of the microcast, one of the users who I think explored it in a very interesting way was I Am Millennial's Jonathan. We heard one from him before. Here's another one that in 90 seconds takes us on an epic coffee run. Good morning. Love, love, love Saturday mornings. Time for some coffee. Got my glass mason jar. Under the Keurig machine we go. Oh wait, let's grab a coffee pod and let's open the cabinet and... Oh no, I'm out of coffee. Mm, Nope, not starting today without coffee. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse. Let's get out of here. Okay, into the car we go. Gotta get some gas later. Freaking $4 a gallon. I swear, California be doing too much sometimes. Alright, here we are. What am I here for again? Oh yeah, the coffee. The coffee out we go. Oh, hello, avocado. Avocado toast, anyone? Yes. Two for five, get in my basket. What? You mean to tell me they have mega stuff Oreos? Um, yeah. What is a diet? Now that we have Oreos, gotta get some more milk. Milk in the bag we go. Oh, steak on sale. You gotta be kidding me. Two ribeyes for $20. It costs 50 at the steakhouse anyway. In you go. What else? Oh yeah, the coffee. Dark roast blend, thank you very much. To the self-checkout we go. Okay, okay, Unexpected shh, okay. in Shut up, shut up. What do you mean my total is 60 bucks? I came here for coffee. Ah. Uh, hope you enjoyed that and thanks for listening. While we're on the subject of food, and I expect there will be much more about food on this episode, as it is certainly a topic of interest of mine, but speaking of that, did you know that fattening rooms were a thing? Here, Voluptuous Voyager, aka Assie, tells us about this African practice. Hey, it's Assie, the Voluptuous Voyager. Welcome to my microcast on YKYZ. Growing up, I was always a chubby girl, but I didn't really have body image issues. As an African girl, your weight was a symbol of your family status and wealth, so something to be proud of. In fact, in some African cultures, when a girl reached an age of puberty, they are placed in what is called fattening rooms. And this is where they are prepared for marriage and womanhood. 
For a period of about a month, girls are housed in seclusion of the community and the only visitors allowed are elderly women who come to pass on lessons on marital etiquette and how to be a good wife. During this confinement period, they are massaged daily and hand-fed large meals of foods high in fat and carbs and they have to have very minimal physical activity. During this period, the more weight you gain, the more beautiful and desirable you are deemed to be. You are also deemed to be a good candidate for marriage. And in fact, the bigger you are, the greater the pride of your family. Of course, we're all westernized now. So being big is no longer fashionable, which maybe is a good thing, health-wise anyway. One of my other favorite microcast episodes from Asi, the voluptuous voyager, involves a particular kind of tax. There is a saying that goes, charity begins at home. Now, when you've grown up black in South Africa, that saying takes on another meaning in the form of what we know as black tax. There's a high probability that you're the first to get a proper education or to graduate or the first to have a corporate job or own a car. But with that, you also carry a huge burden to give back or to support your family, immediate and extended, and sometimes the community which helped raise you and sacrifice for you to achieve all these firsts. We are raised on a concept of Ubuntu, which is a Nguni term which translates to I am because we are. The idea that a person is a person through other people. And so you condition from an early age that you have to constantly take care of others, so much so that there's nothing left for yourself. Every time I would visit relatives, I'd always ask for money. And when I didn't have any, I was shamed and made guilty for it. So I stopped going. And I haven't seen them in about two years now. Because eventually, I had to choose myself. And guess what? I sleep very well at night. As we enter into October, here's one of my favorite microcast episodes that might help us to get in the mood from Cat Guru Joni. Hey guys, Cat Guru Joni here, and welcome to another episode of Cat or Fiction here on YKYZ.com. <laughs> Alongside ghosts, ghouls, and monsters, there seem to be two creatures commonly associated with Halloween. One you'll find hanging upside down in caves or fruit trees, but the other is more likely found sitting on a windowsill, staring into the night. Yep, you guessed it, the cat. It's common knowledge that felines were worshipped amongst a few ancient cultures, Egyptian and Greek to name a couple. So what happened that led cats becoming associated with the devil, and eventually to become a staple of Halloween iconography? In the Middle Ages, when witches were punished by death, black cats became associated with them. False witness accounts spread of witches turning into cats. This was probably because the Celts believed that cats were actually humans who'd been forced to return to this world after committing bad deeds. These days, during Halloween, the presence of black cats is more of a fun, spooky look into the past. Well, not so fun for the cats. But luckily now, most people realise that cats are simply creatures deserving of love and fairness, like all other animals. What's your reaction when you see a black cat? 
Do you run over to give it a pat, or are you still wary of the potential bad luck that they may bring? Until next time, Cat Guru Journey signing out. As part of my own efforts to avoid bad luck, I'm going to take a break, and then we will be back with more of the best of YKYZ and its It's all about making that GTA. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard, come talking that trash and we'll... Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am dedicating this episode to a service that used to exist and still kind of does, but mostly as an archive. It was all about really short podcast episodes, microcasts, and we're going through some of the best of those episodes today. Let's get right back into into it from Snippets with Sophia. One of the coolest things about many of the microcast episodes is how well they were able to explore one tiny topic. In this case, that tiny topic is a kind of tea. All the world knows that British people like drinking tea. I like drinking tea too, but I don't quite get the obsession. And I certainly don't adulterate my tea with milk and sugar. Nope, I prefer my tea straight and unadulterated. If you want to drink tea like a British royal, one commonly available and affordable option is Twining's Tea. What we know today as Twining's was started in 1706 by failed weaver-turned-merchant Thomas Twining. He actually opened a coffee house named Tom's Coffee House in London, which still stands in the exact same location to this day. Twining's expanded his offerings to include tea, and the fine blends proved to be very popular. Twining's gained its first royal warrant in 1837 under Queen Victoria, and the warrant has been renewed by every monarch since then. Royal patronage for over 200 years. Wow. Queen Elizabeth reportedly likes the Earl Grey Twining's blend, which in the U.S. goes for a whopping $12 per box. At 100 tea bags per box, that's only 12 cents for a cup of royal tea. Not a bad deal at all. That was Sophia with her microcast snippets with Sophia. She was the master of the minutiae in another one of her microcast episodes. She gave a brief history of a popular candy and powerful men. American presidents come and go, but one thing that endures is the presidential box of M&M's. Back in the old days when everyone smoked, the White House gave out gifts of cigarette packs decorated with the presidential seal. Ronald Reagan was staunchly against smoking, and he put an end to that practice. While people in the White House may not have been allowed to smoke, they were allowed to munch on the free candy provided, usually Reagan's favorite jelly beans that he always kept in stock. In 1988, Reagan requested the Mars Candy Company to make specially packaged M&Ms for an upcoming summit with the Soviet Union. These red, white, and blue M&Ms came in a small white box emblazoned with the presidential seal and were given out to various dignitaries as well as Soviet schoolchildren. Reagan liked the presidential M&Ms so much that he kept the orders flowing for the rest of his presidency. Every president since then has kept up the tradition of giving out M&Ms with only minor modifications to the original box design. It doesn't matter if the president didn't actually like M&M's, as was supposedly the case with Barack Obama. Guests shall have the presidential M&M's. This is Sophia, and thanks for listening. Continuing 
on the theme of food and microcasts, Bearded Swede Frederick, who we heard from earlier talking about the tradition of wandering the countryside of his homeland, gives us a look at bread made with animal blood as the liquid ingredient. Hello and welcome to the Swedish Milkersport here on YKYZ.com. Palt bread or blood bread, which would be a suitable English translation, is a bread that's been made by using animal blood as the liquid ingredient. The bread is then dried. It's an old custom used by poor people who had to make sure they wasted no resources. It's very nutritious and iron rich. Similar dishes can be found in, for example, Asia or Africa. As is often the case, which Anthony Bourdain stated much more eloquently, poor people's food stand the test of time, while the excesses of the rich are forgotten. Paltbröd, which these days is most common in the northern parts of Sweden, was one of my favorite dishes growing up. My mother served it boiled with potato, bacon, bechamel sauce, and lingonberry jam. That was Frederick talking about Swedish food. Next up from the YKYZ archives, we have Diz, and she is going to explain the Chinese system of years and animals, this one being the year of the ox, for those who might be wondering. And she also includes a nifty trick for asking for someone's age without asking for their age. This is Astrocast, where we'll be talking about astrology and the funny personality traits of all 12 signs, just for fun, on YKYZ.com. Have you ever been asked, ooh, girl, what's your Chinese zodiac sign? What? Chinese zodiac? What's that? Well, the Chinese zodiac is divided into 12-year cycles as opposed to Western astrology, which is divided by 12 months. The Chinese zodiac is also labeled by 12 different animals. So in China, asking your zodiac animal is a polite way to ask your age. They will also evaluate your fortune or misfortune, personality, career aspects, and paint a picture of your private life. Even if you don't believe in Chinese astrology, you have to think that a quarter of the world's population is heavily influenced by it. The belief is so strong that your given animal can determine your name, marriage, decide the year you'll want to start having children, and even when to enter a romantic relationship. So some animals are luckier than others. For example, dragons are known for their power. So in 2012, the year of the dragon, the birth rate in China increased by 5%. Many Chinese people even make investments based by the zodiac sign index. Interesting, right? As one of the major global leaders, maybe we should be paying more attention to all this zodiac business. In another of my favorite podcast episodes from Diz, she makes a wish on a falling star. This is Astrocast. Astrological snacks in 90 seconds or less on YKYZ.com. Did you know that all people of all traditions in the world look up to the sky and stars in prayer? 
In all the traditions around the world, stars have remained the greatest mystery of the cosmos. Ancient Romans thought that shooting stars were pieces of a heavenly shield that was protecting the world. Some cultures consider them sacred objects and divine gifts. Stars are often used to symbolize heavenly bodies, purity, and good luck. In dreams, a shooting star is a sign of self-fulfillment and advancement in life. For me, stars have always reminded me of some other worlds and celestial forces that possibly could affect us. I remember when I was 13 years old at a capground dance, looking up and praying for a shooting star. And when I finally saw one, oh yeah, I prayed, not for world peace, but to finally get a boyfriend. And guess what? I got one a couple of years later. <laughs> have you ever wished upon a star? That was Diz from her microcast on YKYZ. This episode of The Matt Asher Show, we are dipping into the archives of an audio website for very short podcast episodes and running through some of my favorite of those episodes. One of the things I liked the most about the website was that it was more than just a platform for these short audio snippets or microcasts. It was also a community. In this episode, Kat Guru Joni, who we heard from earlier, takes on a topic suggested to her by another user. Hey guys, Joni here. This episode today was suggested to me by Violacious Curiosity, and I'm really excited to cover it. So she sent me an article from Science Alert titled, Cats do bond secretly to their humans, maybe even more so than dogs. From reading through the article, one thing that stood out to me was funny, and that's that they said that this is not a surprise at all to people that have cats or that have owned cats. And I totally agree with this. One thing I found interesting in the article was that it brought up the fact that dogs seem to have this, as they stated, monopoly over the idea of them being man's best friend, the best friend to the homo sapiens. Oregon State University conducted a series of experiments to kind of see the similarities between how cats and dogs respond to being separated from their owners. They took 79 kittens and 38 adult cats, and they placed them together in a room, under the same conditions that they did the dogs. After analysing the results from these two tests, 64.3% of the cats and kittens were categorised as securely attached, whereas 61% of the dogs were categorised as securely attached. Something I found super interesting about this is that these um, rates are actually quite similar to the attachment rate seen in human infants at about 65%. To end this episode, a really great quote from the person that ran this test, Kristen Vitali. She says that, I think there's this idea that dogs are this way and cats are that way, but there's a lot of variability in both populations. Over the course of my involvement with YKYZ, I learned a lot by listening to the various microcast episodes. One of the things that I learned had to do with the rumor that's been out there forever about what really was going on with that midget hanging in The Wizard of Oz. Hello, kind listeners. Welcome to another broadcast of the Broken Down Starship on YKYZ. This is the continuing series on movie myths, in which I discuss some well-known behind-the-scenes mysteries and legends that have occurred in movies. This time, we're looking at the famous Wizard of Oz. And the mystery goes like this. One of the actors who played a munchkin in the film committed suicide by hanging himself while the camera was rolling, and that for some reason the shot was never edited out because no one noticed it in the background. 
The scene in question is when Dorothy and the Scarecrow discover the Tin Man. Apparently you can see what looks like a little body swinging from a tree. Legend has it that the people who played the Munchkins were treated so badly, and the working conditions were so rough, that one of them hung themselves out of depression. And this legend has persisted through the years, despite the fact that it's actually been disproven. Apparently no such suicide ever took place. As can be seen if you zoom in and slow down the footage, the figure moving around in the soft focus background of the scene is actually a live exotic bird that was distributed around the set for visual flair. It's supposedly either a crane or an emu. It does make for rather interesting, albeit morbid, tall tale, but at the end of the day, it's just not true. I feel like at this point it's been too long since I touched on the topic of food and drink, at least through the microcast episodes. So here's one about the history of beer from Micah. Good evening to you all. This is episode 36, and I'm Micah. All right, I've talked a lot of history in this microcast, but tonight I'm going to take us back further than we've ever gone before. I'm going to be talking about the origins of beer itself. Did you guys know that beer is the oldest recorded recipe in the world? The ancient Egyptians documented the process onto papyrus scrolls around 5000 BC. The first beers were brewed with ingredients like dates and pomegranates. The Egyptians are said to have used beer for religious ceremonies. But the craziest part is that the Egyptians weren't the first ones to make beer either. In 10,000 BC, the Mesopotamians are believed to have been the first brewers. Unfortunately, though, they never recorded their recipes. Eventually, beer made its way from the Middle East into Europe, where it became very popular. People liked beer for the nutritional value and because the brewing process made beer safer to drink than water at the time. It was not until the Middle Ages that the beverage we know as beer would come into fruition. I'll stop the story here, and we'll pick it right back up in our next episode. Cheers! Let's just keep going on this topic of things we consume. That was beer, and what about pancakes, or what about really, really big flapjacks? Here's Sophia again. Myths and legends tend to be very old, often thousands of years old. The story of Gilgamesh is over 4,000 years old, Helen of Troy, 2,000 years, Thor and King Arthur, over 1,000 years. So I was pretty surprised when I realized I was raised on the relatively new legend of Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan was a lumberjack from the northern United States, or southern Canada, where forests are abundant and the woodcutting industry is significant. Paul Bunyan was a giant man who created famous landmarks such as the 10,000 Lakes of Minnesota, the Grand Canyon, and Niagara Falls. How old are the legends of Paul Bunyan? Barely a hundred years old. So, story time. Paul Bunyan loved pancakes. And being a giant man who created lakes with his footprints, he required a lot of pancakes. So the griddle he used to make his pancakes was one acre wide and was made of the ore of an entire iron mine. To grease the griddle, several people strapped blocks of bacon fat to their feet and then proceeded to skate across the griddle surface, spreading the grease. The pancake batter required enough milk to fill a lake and over 200 eggs. And okay, that story doesn't really have an ending. The whole point is that Paul Bunyan liked pancakes and he ate a lot of them. The end. 
YKYZ was home to microcasters from a wide variety of places and professions, including doctors. When we come back from the break, a doctor, Dr. Irish, as he called himself, distinguished between the patient and the condition and talks about stigma, which is a topic I myself will probably explore in a later episode. You know, if I say something, I mean it. These things happen. Yeah. If I ever said I'm never scared, just know I mean it. This is going to feel real good, all right? Most Welcome back to the Everybody Matt please radio show on Keys Talk FM, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. Today, we are going through the archives of a website called YKYZ that hosted audio snippets, micro-podcasts, otherwise known as microcasts. And before the break, I was talking about the variety of different voices we had on that website, including some doctors. This one, Dr. Irish, talks about a topic that I think we may all be talking about again pretty soon. Health and stigma. Welcome back to YKYZ with Dr. Irish. Today I want to talk about the stigmas associated with health and medicine and the best way to avoid them. Stay tuned. So first off, what do I mean by a stigma? For those of you who might not know what the word means, a stigma is usually a mark of disgrace or shamefulness on someone. That thing can be identifying. Usually it's chronic. So when we're talking day-to-day, a stigma is usually a negative thing. A stigma in healthcare is usually always a negative thing. It's never right to call someone by something that identifies them with regards to their health. This happens all the time. In healthcare, it usually goes as, Oh, he's the diabetic. She's the epileptic. He's the schizophrenic. See how that starts to get worse and worse? And believe me, it does get worse. See, by calling people that, while it may seem innocent, you're saying something bigger at the end of the day. You're saying that the disease owns the patient. No, it doesn't work like that. It's the patient has the disease. People aren't identified by the extraneous circumstances owning them. It's them who owns the thing. From now on, say, John who has diabetes, or Mary who suffers from schizophrenia, and so on. In March of last year, right before all hell had broken loose, YKYZ did its own version of March Madness, where different microcasters took over for one or more episodes, the microcasts of other users. Here you'll hear Assie, who you've heard before, taking over the podcast of the Bearded Swede. Note that if you like this little mini episode, you might also like the full radio episode I did a couple weeks ago about Robert Jensen's book, Personal Effects. See mattasher.com for that and every episode after it airs on the radio. Hello and welcome to the Swedish Smorgasbord March Madness Takeover with the Voluptuous Voyager. Now, of course, I'm talking about Sweden, but I still wanted to add some of my own flavor to it. And while doing my research on Sweden, this well-known Swedish practice caught my attention. Doorstudning. The Swedish practice of death cleaning. 
Swedish author Margareta Magnusson details this proactive and mindful clearing of your possessions before death in her book, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, How to Free Yourself and Your Family from a Lifetime of Clutter. The concept is a practice of decluttering and to make you think of your habits of collecting and start getting organized. The idea is that as you age, you gradually remove unnecessary material things and get your home in order as you get older in order to minimize the amount of stuff that you will end up leaving behind for others to deal with when you die. Now, I found this very interesting and so practical. I feel like it's important to tidy up your life and get your affairs in order because life is unpredictable and you shouldn't leave people behind wondering. Now, since we can never trust the internet, let's hear what that bearded Swede has to say about this. I hope you enjoyed the takeover and please don't forget to share your thoughts on Swedish death cleaning in the Blitz. Thanks for listening. As the world descended into madness last year, the microcasters of YKYZ found various ways to cope. Hi, it's Claire and welcome to today's episode. I'm sharing a tip that I've been using lately to avoid touching my face. I have been occupying my hands with stress balls. So when my hands are not holding anything, I learned that it was more likely that I would lean on my hands or that I would touch my forehead or my chin. And this is not something you want to be doing right now. So I decided to get some stress balls and I just hold them in my hands to keep them occupied while I am not doing anything with them. And for many of us, touching our face is a reflex action. So I shared this because I thought some of you would find it helpful. Let me know if it is. Here's another strategy that was used to cope in those times. Maybe it's one you employed yourself. Hi all, it's Becky with Smart Money on YKYZ. It's gardening time and here are some tips on starting your own indoor plants. Tomatoes are another good indoor plant as long as you follow a few simple tips. First, pick a smaller variety like cherry or grape and make sure you choose a compact plant that won't get leggy or branch out too much. Again, I would recommend buying a plant from a nursery or garden center just because it's easier and it's only a few dollars. Definitely worth it. You'll want a five-gallon container, decorative or otherwise, so the roots have enough room. Make sure to add bone meal or crushed eggshells to the potting mix to provide calcium, an essential nutrient for tomato plants. Fertilize the plant about two weeks after planting. Use a water-soluble fertilizer meant for tomato plants, such as 5-10-10. Use a fertilizer that has less nitrogen, which promotes foliage growth and less fruit production. Apply this every two weeks and stop once your tomatoes begin to ripen. You will have to hand pollinate the tomato plant by swirling a small paintbrush inside each flower and moving from flower to flower. This spreads the pollen necessary for fruiting to occur. Also, when watering the tomato plant, always water from the base, never from the top. And ta-da! You have tomatoes that you've grown all by yourself. In those troubled early days of the pandemic, some took to drinking, others to running, and some took to both. Here is Micah to explain. Good evening, everyone. This is episode 189. Could you drink 100 beers in a week? Could you run 100 miles in a week? Most importantly, could you do both of those things in the same week? If your name is Matt Gamble, the answer is yes. 
In fact, the show-op drank 101 beers and ran 101 miles, just because he could. Matt is from Dover, New Hampshire, and in his younger days, he was the best high school high jumper in all of the state. But that was a decade ago. He lives in Las Vegas now, but recently returned to Dover to help his parents move. He said he'd been wanting to do this challenge for a while, which is entitled the Bicentennial Running Challenge. Others have done it before him, but Matt took it to another level by using the challenge to raise $6,000 for coronavirus and mental health-related charities. His beer of choice was Michelob Ultra due to the low calorie count, and I have to say that I can't think of a better beer for this type of challenge. But even with drinking what is considered to be the lightest of beers, he didn't feel too great most of the week. But he said the last few miles were the easiest because he was running on pure adrenaline. Matt said he picked the perfect time to attempt this challenge because running is a good way to social distance while exercising. For the last leg of the challenge, he ran on his high school's track as a small crowd formed to watch him. His Instagram grew 30% in one week after the community started spreading the word about this impressive feat. I'd like to see him try this challenge again with IPAs next time. I bet the results would be a bit different. That's all the time I have for tonight. Cheers. In this emotionally resonant, well-written, poetic episode, Elsa expertly expresses the angst that so many of us felt in April of 2020. Welcome to SPN Proud. I'm Elsa and I'm autistic. Every single day I ask myself, why do I allow fear to devour me? Why do I allow it to grow on me when it shouldn't even be there in the first place? This coronavirus situation has been really hard for me as an autistic person. Well, as well for the fear, it's because I'm precisely allowing it to be alive. I give matter to it and it grows and grows while the stars are shining bright still outside. It's so hard to believe in anything these days. I feel like I'm suffocating every day, every hour that passes. My soul moves, as if my heart was eventually too big to handle the world and the body it beats in. I feel bitter, eaten up by both my past and my future. I don't know anything anymore. My present is simply becoming a tool for transition that leaves no trace. I'd like to forget. I'd like to disconnect my synapses. I'd like to be drunk on the lightness of being that I thought I knew when I was 14. I'd like to reach for the ideal that concept Baudelaire wrote about in his poems that he celebrated and loved. I'd like to touch it again to see if it's alive. Is it asleep? Is it dead? I don't even know if I'm running after a memory or a crashing star anymore. YKYZ, the audio snippet sharing and microcasting service, ultimately ended up as one more victim of the pandemic or to be more precise, a victim of the reaction to the pandemic. Maybe at some point I will tell that story. But for now, before we wrap up, here's a reflection from Addie Caldwell. Hi, cats. Addie Caldwell here with Music and Peace and a quote from the fabulously controversial John Lennon. In a Playboy interview in 1980, John was quoted as saying, it's better to fade away like an old soldier than to burn out. And you might be thinking, okay, what the heck is that supposed to mean? Well, a song released by Neil Young in 1979 is what originally sparked that comment. The song My My Hey Hey Out of the Blue included a lyric that said, it's better to burn out than to fade away. John was saying that he doesn't really like the idea of people idolizing and borderline worshipping artists who end up dying. In his opinion, it's better to have your moment and then settle down and live out your life, instead of dying right at the peak of everything that you're living for. 
The original Neil Young quote came back into circulation later on when Kurt Cobain used it in his suicide note. You'll probably recognize Kurt Cobain as the lead singer of Nirvana. Now, what makes it ironic to me is that this thing that John Lennon was speaking against, martyring icons who die, is kind of exactly what happened to him. He became this thing rather than a person. He became like this symbol. He barely got the chance to even do any of the fading away at all. I think I agree with him here. I think there's this kind of societal concept of love, you know, like, I love you so much I could die, I'd die for you kind of thing, but I don't really think that's love. I think love is when you love something or someone enough to live for it. You give up that idea of burning up in some grand passionate wildfire and you choose to sit back safe and enjoy the warmth of the flame instead. And that's alright. I think we'd be lucky to be permitted to fade. What do you guys think? Does the blaze of glory top a candle flame? Before we fade away here on the Matt Asher radio show, I'm going to play one more clip from Assie, otherwise known as Voluptuous Voyager, with a reflection on life and loss. Voluptuous Voyager, YKYZ. It's been nine years since my father passed away. My mother keeps his picture on a frame in her bedroom. But they didn't like each other. And by the time he died, I wasn't actually on good terms with him. My father had three of us, all girls, while married to my mother, and two older kids that we met later in life. My sisters worshipped this man. For all his flaws, they loved him unconditionally. Till death, it seemed he was still their hero, and it's one of the reasons why I've struggled to talk about him many years after his death. My mother chose to endure years of physical abuse from this man, and for my part, I loved him but also felt incredibly terrorized, traumatized, and fearful every day I was in his presence. He was the reason I thought I would die young because I believed he would kill us all. Every day. I hate to say it, but I felt like I relaxed for the first time in my life the day he died. And I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but fact is, we all experienced him differently and all choose to remember him differently. Either way, I see now how very much alike I am to my father, and so I get some of the things that went down. And although he's not my hero, I hope he found peace on the other side. Thanks to everyone for listening. I will talk to you next week.